This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. After experiencing trauma, I went to therapy and my therapist guided me through a difficult time in my life. They helped me understand what was happening and provided me with tools to cope and find my own strength and resilience. Their experience and compassion were invaluable and enabled me to rebuild my life and move forward. I strongly believe in the power of therapy to help people through difficult times. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who is trained to listen and give you helpful, unbiased advice. First, you go to their site. You can use my link, betterhelp.com resilience. You answer a few questions and BetterHelp will match you to a professional who has years of experience helping people with struggles just like yours. Let BetterHelp connect you to a therapist who can support you, all from the comfort of your own home. Visit betterhelp.com slash resilience or choose podcast, then notes on resilience during sign up and enjoy a special discount on your first month. Hello, welcome to Notes on Resilience. I'm your host, Manya Chalinski. My guest today is Amy Ginden. She's a keynote speaker, a trained mental health crisis clinician, and the head of brand and communications at LifeSpeak, a company that is all about whole person well-being for organizations. We had a wonderful conversation about what it means to belong, how important the soft skills are, but those are really human skills, and the importance of self-worth. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Welcome. Today, my guest is Amy Ginden. And Amy, before I ask you what you do and who you are, I would love to know what is your superpower? (laughs) That's a great question. Um, I would say my superpower is empathy. I have always been a really deep feeler. I, I feel my own feelings deeply. I feel other people's feelings deeply. And I think because of that, it has really made me strong in my ability to have great relationships with my peers and my colleagues and my team. So empathy is my superpower. Oh, I love that. Now, if I had a magic wand and could grant you any superpower, what would that be? To, in addition to your existing superpower? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I think that it would be a better ability to focus. I, like many people, find myself challenged by all of the different apps and notifications and communication channels and having the ability to turn everything off screens included and just be present would bring so much to my life. So it's something I actively work on, but if it was my superpower and maybe one day it will be, um, I think I would be way better off. (laughs) A lot of us would be, and I I wish for that superpower for you and I wish I could grant it. Um, (laughs) Thank you for sharing a little bit into who you are, but now tell us who you are and what you do and why you're in a place to be thinking about resiliency or compassion today. 
Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. This is a topic that um, I've been passionate about my whole life. Getting a little bit personal, my mom is someone who has always struggled with pretty severe mental illness. And so at a young age, I asked some pretty big questions about um, why people behave the way that they behave and why people feel the way that they feel. And it led me in graduate school to a master's in counseling psychology, where I spent about four years, first as a guidance counselor, and then as a mental health crisis management clinician. Um, And so a lot of my time was spent on helping people reframe, cultivate resilience, find compassion, not just with other people, but within themselves is a really big piece. And while I ended up leaving the clinical world for business, that those elements of compassion and resilience and empathy have stayed with me my whole life and really led me to where I am today at LifeSpeak, which is a whole person well-being organization um, that's really trying to reach millions of people globally to give them the skills that they need to be resilient and to have compassion for other people and themselves. Yes. You have moved into an interesting role, I think, given your education and your background. Um, You know, that word resilience, you may or may not have heard me say that I have a hate, not completely hate relationship with that word. Um, What does the word resilience mean to you? What does it make you think about? The definition for me has changed over the years. I think for a long time, I felt like resilience was synonymous with bulletproof. That if you were resilient, then bad things could happen and it wouldn't impact you. It would just bounce off of you. And that some people were lucky to be resilient and some people weren't. And it took me, you know, a graduate degree and life experience to learn that resilience is actually the opposite. It's the ability to take the stress and the bad with the good and exist in it. Um, It's the ability to accept that things are bittersweet and that not everything is going to be shiny and rosy, but to be able to move forward, not despite it, but to move forward with it. And so to me, I think resilience is about a reframing of not necessarily like this invincible bulletproof idea, but really more about an acceptance of what life is and an ability to embrace it and to admit it and to honor it and to talk about it. Thank you for that answer. I like that thinking of it's the ability to accept life for what it is, because I feel like that, at least for myself, can sometimes be a little bit of a hurdle. And I also used to think it meant Mm -hmm. being bulletproof and that I that wasn't me. So, you know, who were these lucky people who got to be resilient? And, <laughs> and I know, I know. 
Why do you think it is, though, that we are so good at looking at other people and assuming <laughs> they are fundamentally different or better? Well, I think it's a number of reasons. I think that as humans, we like to bucket things into oversimplified categories as good and bad or good and evil, um, easy and hard when we don't, it's harder for our brains to wrap our heads around nuance and complexity. And then I think you've got the added challenge of the media and social media really bringing like one-sided stories to people, you know, at scale, right? You, the term fake book exists for a reason. You're showing the best sides of yourself and then no one's really seeing the vulnerable sides because we don't live in a society where it's okay to be vulnerable and share the good with the bad. We live in a society that is obsessed with toxic positivity. Yes. And so I think I think it's a number of things. I think it's the way that we're wired and then I also think that that wiring gets perpetuated in the media. Yes, absolutely. When I think about resiliency, I think about it in a couple different ways. I think about the personal resiliency that we all have that that we're talking about here. Um, that doesn't mean we're bulletproof and it's something we can all cultivate. And I also think about the way that we as individuals interact with the organizations around us and the companies we work for and the larger systems that we're part of. And mm-hmm. how do you think the role of our systems or our institutions can really help or prevent people from being resilient or healing from trauma Yeah. So that's a great question. We're actually doing some research on this now. We have a report coming out in January and we looked at the mental health of employees, how they are today compared to how they were um, during the height of the pandemic. And one of the things that we found is that employees who rated themselves as having better mental health and more loyalty with their organization really felt like they belonged. Mm -hmm. And I know belonging can sometimes feel like an elusive term, but I think that this idea of culture and uh, culture of belonging and psychological safety is something that organizations can do to cultivate resilience in their workforce. And also, I think it just impacts the bottom line, right? Like if you feel safe communicating your needs, you feel like your needs are being met by your manager, you're more likely to be more productive and stay. And so... To me, it comes down to companies really understanding that the soft stuff isn't actually soft at all Mm -hmm. um, and that we need to be investing in the way people feel and their ability to communicate as much as we invest in their professional development or their employee benefits. Right. Thank you. You said a few things in there I, I want to follow up on, but one of them was that sense of belonging. And yeah. what is the connection between having a sense of belonging and our mental health? 
Yeah. I mean, I think as humans, we have this, we are not meant to be solo creatures. We have this innate need to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And that can exist in lots of different circles, right? It's your family, it's your group of friends, um, it's your community, it's your job. And so your sense of belonging exists in a number of different roles within yourself. How I how I belong in my immediate family versus how I belong at my company. And so when we don't feel like we belong, what we end up feeling is lonely. We end up feeling misunderstood, invalidated, and all of those elements can lead to feelings of depression Mm -hmm. and anxiety and not feeling enough. And that's detrimental. And so the ability to feel safe in communicating those feelings is just completely imperative to a person's mental health within the setting that they're in. Right. You know, and I think of the workplace among all of the things, all of the roles it plays, it is also a community that we are part of. And you were talking about, you know, the the study that you guys did, which is fabulous, and I can't wait to read the results. And that it shows that those soft, soft, quote unquote, soft skills are really important. What is the challenge with helping businesses understand that the soft skills are important? I think it's measurement. I think it always comes down to data that, um, you know, the higher up you are in an organization, typically the more tied you are to a company's bottom line. Mm -hmm. And sometimes these quote unquote soft skills or what Simon Sinek has rebranded to be human skills can be hard to measure or they take a lot longer than something that's a little bit more tangible. But there are companies who are trying to put the right data in place so that they can see the long-term effects of that work. Um, But it's tough to get an ROI on the softer pieces because there's a lot of factors that go into it and some are within your control and some aren't. But I think that we can at least take steps as a society to measure what we can so that companies feel more confident that they are investing in something that is good for people and not just isn't intuitively a nice thing to have. Right, right. And in your experience with the um, companies that you've worked with and you've seen, is there something in particular that they all share, a type of management style or size of the company or something that enables them to have a culture that that does take into consideration these human skills? Yeah, it's a great question. It's something I think about a lot as a marketer and putting personas in place. Our best clients have huge hearts. They are people first. 
they would consider themselves empaths. They see the value in well-being and they want to be able to give that to their organizations. So there's no convincing. There are no ROI conversations. They know that their leadership style is that when you invest in your people, you invest in your company. And so um, those are the types of people that we work with. And I would say that fortunately, one of the silver linings that came out of the pandemic is that more and more people and more and more organizations are seeing mental health and well-being as a must-have and not a nice-to-have. And so I think there's been a bit of a culture change that's happening, and that takes time. Uh, but it's, it is certainly one of the positive effects that has come from this. Yes, I have recognized that silver lining as well and am happy to see it. I'm sad that the that's what it took for maybe some organizations to to understand. Do you think that this awareness of mental health and you know, some of the efforts that companies are making now, do you think this is going to be a real lasting change? Or do you think it's sort of a fad and resiliency and mental health are the thing we talk about now because it's pandemic? You know, I can't predict the future, but... <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Why not, Amy? <laughs> I think it's going to stick around for a couple reasons. One is that the internet has made our world, a very stressful place. You've got political campaigns, you've got global news at your fingertips within seconds. And so whether there's a pandemic or a war or a recession, there will always be, as I said before about life being bittersweet, there will always be something that is a primary driver of stress. And then the other piece is I think that um, social media has really given employees a voice that they never had before, where you might not feel comfortable going directly to your CEO and saying, here are my problems. But those people are posting on LinkedIn and they're posting on Facebook and they're posting on Twitter. And those posts are going viral and they're starting movements. And you can certainly see it in Gen Z especially. And so I think that there is a generational mind shift that's happening where um, the younger employees are not tolerating what boomers and Gen X were forced to put up with. And so organizations have to be really careful now to be more employee first instead of employer first, because people, and we saw it with the great resignation, people have a much lower tolerance for BS <laughs> than <laughs> they did prior to the pandemic. So my hope is that with social media both being a highlighter of all of the anxiety in the world, but also a place where people can speak freely that this is something that will stick around for good. Yes. One of the things about the pandemic that I think precipitated the great resignation is that for those of us in the kind of business where we could work from home or we could change the way we were interacting with our workplace, we saw that it could be different. Mm -hmm. It didn't have to be 
kind of hours or the kind of, um, you know, nonstop go, go, go that it's, I think it can be really easy to get caught up in. And now that we know it can be different. Mm -hmm. There's no going back. You can't give someone a raise and then take it away. And you can't give someone workplace flexibility and then take it away without there being repercussions. People don't, don't willingly accept a lower quality of life. Right. Right. So for organizations that are thinking or somebody who's in an organization thinking, you know, I'm not sure my company is people first is thinking about me as a human. What are some things to look for that maybe they could see there is an opening to really be thinking about how to how to take care of us as employees, as whole, messy human beings. And I think it depends on the organization. I've been speaking with some organizations where employees don't feel safe speaking up, even to their managers. In larger organizations, a lot of them have employee resource groups where, you know, there might be one for mental health, there might be one for parents, there might be one for caregivers where an employee can, you know, join the group and get support outside of the people who they're reporting to day to day. So that is certainly an option. Um, You know, I am, I went into communications ultimately because I believe that people and organizations will live or die by their communications. And so I'm a big believer in transparency and for the ability to anyone at any level to have frank conversations with their managers. The reality is, is that some people have the privilege to do that and some people don't. And so I hesitate telling people to go to their manager and tell them exactly how they're feeling um, because some people are in much more vulnerable financial positions than others. But I would encourage conversations with um, the leaders of their ERGs if they have them. I would encourage conversations with managers if they have a supportive manager. I would also look to HR. A lot of companies have employee benefits that employees aren't even aware of. I mean, there was a study that like only 30% of employees on average know what benefits are available to them. Oh, wow. And so there, in a lot of cases, are benefits that can help support employees, whether it's an employee assistance program, whether it's, you know, a mental health app or a caregiver support app. There's a lot that sometimes is in place, but just isn't communicated well. So I would say that, you know, those are the the really three areas that that I would go to. I certainly wouldn't keep it to yourself because that is a dangerous place that can breed toxic culture when you really don't know what's happening and you're not investigating. You end up filling in the gaps yourself, that which may or may not be true. But I think that, you know, your direct manager, HR, and um, your employee resource group are, are great places to start. Oh, that's excellent. You've mentioned a couple times now the concept of psychological safety. And I love that concept because I I think we've all experienced both sides of that coin. If I'm a manager and what are some things to do to cultivate a a culture, at least within my team, of psychological safety? You know, 
Yeah. So I think that managers can do a few things. One is they can set the stage from the very beginning of an open, transparent dynamic. It's something that I do with my team. Whenever anyone new comes on board, I tell them right away that I want you to feel safe sharing with me whatever it is that's on your mind. There might be instances where I have to push back on you or instances where I disagree, but you're never going to be punished for sharing what's on your mind. In fact, it would be really appreciated. So I think that having that transparency is definitely a a really important piece. Um, Another one, and I hate to call it out because it seems obvious, but like be a nice person and get to know your team. Like ask them how they're doing outside of work. It can be really hard to small talk when you're virtual, but it's so important. And part of developing safety is developing trust and people trust those who are personal with them and vulnerable with them. And so I'm not saying that a manager has to be friends with everyone, but they certainly need to be friendly. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think, you know, the last area is this area of vulnerability and not necessarily breaking boundaries and sharing everything personal that's going on with your life, but being transparent and vulnerable about what is happening at the company that's appropriate to share with Mm -hmm. the team. Because if you're feeling it as a manager, your team is feeling it and they don't know necessarily what's going on. And so the more that you can share greater context of what's happening at the company, maybe it's upcoming changes, maybe it's an acquisition, um, whatever it is that you can share is going to give your team the feeling that, okay, this is someone who's looking out for me. They want me to know the context and they're going to support me. Yes. I like that concept of vulnerability. And as you said earlier, transparency in, in as much as you are able to be transparent about what's going on. Um, The worst feeling is knowing that there, if we're just thinking of organizational change, I've been part of organizations where you know there's a big change coming and things are happening, but nobody will tell you anything about what's happening. And that is not a safe feeling at all. No, it's not. And, you know, there are instances where you're legally not allowed to share anything, right? Right. But that doesn't mean that you can't talk about the idea of change and validate why it's hard and why it's scary. I listened to this great podcast um, by Adam Grant, where he interviewed a, a change management consultant. And he said that change we see as something negative, but when we see change as positive, we call it choice. Ooh. And so I know I just was like, what? and so it's really, it really comes down to a sense of control, right? So there are things that change that are outside of our control and that there are things that change that are inside of our control. And how can we give our teams a sense of control over um, whatever we can? And it might just be as simple as being able to express their feelings about change, even if that's all you can give them, that could be the difference between someone staying and someone leaving. I can absolutely 
understand that at a visceral level. I think a lot about trauma and being a trauma sensitive organization. And one thing that trauma does is it takes away someone's sense of control. So there are certainly many things that can do that, but that feeling of sort of being unmoored and can just make it so difficult to focus or care what's going on around you. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think the trend in psychology more recently is to broaden this idea of trauma. I think a lot of people have this really narrow view that you had to have been involved in something, you know, stereotypically very serious or life-threatening in order to experience trauma. But you know, the reality is, is that we all have trauma and they are certainly varying degrees of it, but being able to acknowledge that, especially through the pandemic, I mean, it was really an equalizer in a lot of different ways with the, the, um, sort of experience we've all had with our own mental health. Um, and so leading, organizations and leading teams with trauma in mind is certainly an important factor for leaders and managers. Yeah. Well, there are so many, as we've talked about in in other venues, there's so many different things that managers have to think about. And there's so many different elements to being a human being. And You know, how do you balance all of that with the need to get that widget out the door? (laughs) I know. I know. It's really tough. I also think that, you know, as humans, we tend to be pendulum swingers, right? Like if you look at history, we went from the 1920s when we were talking about workplace reform and and making um, work a safer place for people to be to the 1950s where it was all about, you know, getting your hours in and working as hard as you can to kind of back pendulum swinging in the previous direction, which is about workplace well-being and psychological safety. And it can be really tough for managers when you're on this pendulum and you feel like you have to be everything to everyone. Yes. The reality is, is that there shouldn't be ever an expectation that your manager or your HR leader is also your therapist, right? Mm -hmm. We have to have a balance for people and we have to have a boundary where we say, okay, we can do better and we can create safe spaces, but this person is not trained, nor should they be even interested in, in being everything for you. And so My hope is that while we are really pushing mental health support very hard in the world right now, that we aren't putting too much on managers and the, you know, HR profession in general to have to play clinician at the same time. That's a really good point. Because once you start talking about some of these topics, I imagine as a manager, it could feel as if, oh, great, on top of all the other things I have to do, now I have to be a therapist. Right. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, we humans are fascinating creatures. <laughs> and we repeat ourselves over and over and over. You know, we're not 
we had a pandemic with the flu a hundred years ago, right? Yeah. And obviously our society is very different now than we were, but I imagine there were a lot of the same feelings and fears that we're experiencing now. And so as much as we can learn from history, I think it certainly serves a positive purpose for us. Yeah. You know, I was talking with a friend about difficult work environments and they described an environment as being death by a thousand paper cuts and feeling that they didn't have a voice and they didn't have a way to make real change in the organization and be treated more like a human. And they were asking me, well, what can I do if my company isn't going to be that sort of aware and I can't leave my job? And I was a little bit flummoxed and I, I'm just curious, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah. There's a lot of people in that situation. Um, a lot of people who can't leave their job, especially with a possible upcoming, upcoming recession, the ability and the appetite for risk isn't what it was in 2021. I think there's a couple of things people can do. Actually, well, I'll say three things that people can do. One thing is to, try their best to take a 30,000 foot view of what they're experiencing. Take the emotion away just for a Mm -hmm. second and write down what the problems are that you're facing. And then underneath each problem, write down solutions that are in your control and solutions that are outside Mm -hmm. of your control. And I think that when people can separate the emotion a few things happen. One is they see things for what they really are. And two is it empowers them. And so when you're able to think more in your rational brain in that frontal lobe, you start to see, I might actually have more control over the situation than I thought I did. Here are some things that I can do that are in my Mm -hmm. control. For the things that aren't in your control, find your advocate. It might not be your manager. It might be your peer who just happens to be a lot more outspoken, who happens to be in a better financial situation from you, who might not have as much to lose and communicate with them. Most people have a friend or someone who has maybe a little bit more power than they do Mm -hmm. at work who can be a champion for them when they can't be a champion for themselves. And then the other thing I would say is if it is not you know, financially impossible to do, I would recommend that everybody have a coach. Um, There are services, I'm not getting paid by any of them to say this, but there are services like Better Up where you can pay as little as $100 a month to have someone who you can meet with on a monthly or biweekly mm-hmm. basis to help you decide how you can navigate situations, how to set boundaries, and maybe when it really is time to leave. So th- th- those would be the three elements I would suggest. Oh, that's really helpful. Thank you. I'm Definitely going to get her to listen to this episode. Um, (laughs) So I appreciate that. And 
Before we wrap up, I've just got one last question for you, which is, was there a question that you wish I had asked you, but I didn't? Oh, um, I didn't really come into this with really any expectations. So probably not. Um, I think that the only thing that I, I didn't share that I, that is something that, you know, has been a personal journey for me that I feel like I'm finally on the other side of is that self-worth and seeing your value as a human in the context of where you work, in the context of your personal relationships will give you the courage to do hard things and to have hard conversations. And I just can't stress that enough. I think that a lot of times the people who are feeling powerless don't value themselves enough to believe that if they are going to have difficult conversations that they might actually be listened to. And I think that confidence can go a long way because no one's going to believe in you unless you believe in yourself first. So I think that's a critical element to resilience. And I think it's a critical element to navigating challenging work situations. Wow. That's a great, thought to wrap up our conversation. Um, Thank you for sharing. Tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you. Yeah. So I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Um, I don't know if you'll share my profile, but I love connecting with new people on LinkedIn and um, happy to have virtual chats with people who might be struggling. I've done it before and it's been uh, a really just wonderful way to connect with people in various situations. So yeah, definitely find me on LinkedIn. Excellent. We'll put a link in the show notes for everyone. And Amy, thank you. This has been such a wonderful conversation. I always love it when we chat and I'm glad I got to record this for everybody else to listen. I'm so glad we had time to connect and thank you so much for inviting me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Bye everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening. I hope you got as much out of this conversation as I did. So if you'd like to learn more about me, Manya Chilinski, I work with organizations to help understand how to create environments where people can thrive after difficult life experiences. And I do this through talks and consulting. I'm a survivor of mass violence, and I use my experience to help leaders learn about resiliency, compassion, and trauma-sensitive leadership, to build strategies to enable teams to thrive and be engaged amidst difficulty and turmoil. If this is something you want to learn more about, visit my website, www.manyachilinski.com or email me at manya at manyachilinski or stop by my social media on LinkedIn and Twitter. Thanks so much. Talk soon.